just while all the kids are leaving us, uh, our reading this morning is going to be from Genesis chapter 42. And if you want to follow it in the Pew Bible that's provided for you, it's on page 47. So you can get that out. Genesis 42. I'll be reading 28 verses. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the one who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you. You are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison. So that, if your words, so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you're not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households but you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now he must give an account for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. 
My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? That's God's word. One thing we've been noticing in this series of sermons in the life of Joseph is how much he reminds us of Jesus. So we're going to use this next song as a prayer before Christoph comes to speak. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Let's just remain seated as we sing this. Sometimes before we come to look at God's Word together, we pray, and you know, it's a prayer of illumination, asking God to open our eyes to show us what He wants to say to us through His Word. We've, we've done that, actually, as we've sung that song. So keep, keep that phrase just uh, repeating. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. If you have that uh, passage open before you, so Genesis 42, we didn't read the whole chapter, but we're going to try and, and deal with it today. Um, these, these longer chunks of narrative, sometimes it's good to have it open on your lap, just uh, it means if I refer to a particular verse or, or an incident there, you can, can see it as we go. So what we're going to notice today as we move into chapter 42 from chapter 41 is a bit of a transition in this story from the, the passage which Stephen looked at and preached on last week uh, into chapter 42. So we're moving from what I'm going to call a macro scale uh, to a micro scale. So macro, um, we've been looking at Joseph, his promotion, his uh, leadership that he's giving in the land of Egypt. You're really dealing with a a kind of a, a prime minister and his cabinet at that level. So you're dealing with the affairs of nations, really. But by the time you come into the opening verses of chapter 20 or 42, you're, you're back into micro. You're dealing with this time with a family. And we're returning to the family of, uh, of Jacob. If you were here for the whole series, you'll know that we, we started by looking at Jacob and his sons. Um, and we've left them behind. It's, it's 20 years since we've been with them uh, because Joseph was 17 when he set out um, from, from his family, uh, and now we're dropping back in 20 years later. It, it's, it's interesting to, to notice what's happened here. God pulled Joseph out of his family 20 years ago, brought him to Egypt, and he's done all of that because he wants to keep that family alive. There's a famine, and it seems to be affecting everyone in the known world. But God, 20 years ago, set, set in motion a plan that would make sure that this family would be cared for in the time of this famine. So the narrator switches, I think, from macro back down to micro, but he, he also refocuses our attention from Joseph, who's been very much the, the center of attention to, to the brothers. The focus really seems to fall on the brothers. So Joseph, his, his fortunes have been restored. Everything that was difficult for him uh, when he was sold into slavery, when he served under Potiphar, when he was in prison, he's now king of Egypt, basically. Pharaoh's given him the, the, the throne of Egypt, all the power in Egypt and all the authority. 
But we're back to these brothers. Joseph's going to be part of this narrative, but I think the focus um, is really on these brothers. And there's a question, I think, that we're invited to consider. What, what kind of men are they becoming? Are they still the same as they were? Guys who hated their brother, who kidnapped him, who sold him into slavery all those years ago? Or have they changed? So, in the opening verses, uh, we're allowed behind the scenes uh, to Jacob's family. They've, I'm going to imagine that they've noticed that they're running out of food. They've noticed that there is no food in their neighborhood, their vicinity. They've been rationing their food for months, eking it out, seeing how far it'll take them, but, but it's, it's just not working. They have run out of food. So Jacob, the older Jacob, their father, turns to his sons and he says, why do you just keep looking at each other? Go down to Egypt. They've got grain. There's no point in us sitting here and starving to death. Desperate times, desperate measures, you just have to go. The interesting thing to notice is it's, it's 10 sons who set off, not, not 11. Because if you remember, Jacob's already lost one of his sons, Joseph, 20 years ago. And Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin, the, the youngest of the family, they were the favorites. Jacob's already lost one of his favorites, his, his absolute favorite. He doesn't want to lose Benjamin. So it's only 10 of the sons who set off for Egypt. It's, it's interesting if you allow yourself to imagine your way into this a wee bit. Here they are 20 years later. They're making a journey that on foot or using slow animals. It'll take them up to two weeks to make this journey. And, and they're following the exact same route that Joseph went on 20 years ago. Two weeks on the road by foot. Give you a wee bit of time to think, wouldn't it? I wonder did they spare a thought for their younger brother that sold into slavery? all those years ago. I wonder on that long, slow trek, did they have Joseph often in mind? After a couple of weeks of this journey, the ten men arrive with their, their caravan of animals. They arrive in Egypt. I'm going to imagine that you didn't just walk in and get your grain and walk out. I'm going to imagine you queued for a while. I don't know if you like queuing. I don't. I'm not a very good cure. I think they queued a long time before they were finally seen. And they were brought before this official who was responsible for, for selling the grain. And they did the most natural thing in the world. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. That, did you get that? Do you remember the very first chapter in the story of Joseph? The very first sermon? It's this incredible moment. 20 years earlier and more, Joseph had had a dream that his brothers would bow down before him. Do you remember the brothers' sheaves of corn bowing down before him, signifying that one day he would rule over them? Well, in that moment, in a grain depot in Egypt, that dream comes true. There's a sense here of all the, all the years, all the turmoil, all the heartache that Joseph had to live through. God's been overseeing it all. He, he's now vindicating his man. 
his promises to him are coming true. There's a wee bit in the narrative here. I don't know how you read these narratives, whether you find some parts of them a little difficult, uh, incredulous. You know, how, how would they not recognize their brother? That's, that's in the story there, isn't it? They, they're before him. They don't recognize their brother. How, how do you not recognize your own flesh and blood? Well, it's been 20 years. Uh, Joseph's been uh, a slave and a prisoner. Those things will have taken their toll on him. Last time they saw him, he would have had his long hair, his, his beard or his beginnings of a beard. He would have been a, a Hebrew shepherd type. By now, he's an Egyptian aristocrat, head and beard shaved every day. You, you know the way the Egyptians had the, the shiny head? I'm going for that look myself a wee bit and, and not, not taking it to an extreme. But um, So he, he just looked entirely different. I, there's, there's a lot of ways you could imagine how, how that would make sense. Here's, here's the key one, I think. They have no category in their head for him still being alive. They have no category in their head that the guy who's in charge of grain in Egypt is Joseph. That, their minds can't even go there. So I think I can understand how they, they just didn't see him didn't get it, didn't recognize their brother. Another question this throws up for me, you know, we've been, we've been saying, we've been seeing a lot of similarity between Joseph and Jesus in this story. Billy just reminded us of that. Well, maybe you read chapter 42 and you say, well, he's not acting a whole lot like Jesus there. He doesn't seem to be very nice to his brothers. It seems a bit harsh. Actually, as we read the story and take it all in, it turns out that Joseph proceeds really with his brother's best interests in, at heart. There, there's just no doubt about that in the long run, even if we can't see it clearly here in chapter 42. He's going to hide his identity from them, yes. He's going to put them through some very difficult situations and circumstances, yes. But we'll see that he ultimately has their well-being very much in his mind. I think what we get from Joseph at this point in the story is, is a very skillfully planned sort of a, a pattern of events where he's really disciplining his brothers. He's punishing them. He's testing them. He's looking for a transformation in their characters. He, he wants to see if the rift between them and him can be healed. He wants to see if they're, they're, they're living closer to the living God. With, with Joseph's help, he's not only going to save them from a famine, but he's going to save them from themselves and who they're becoming. F folks, I want to pause and, and reflect on that for a second. Jo Joseph's dealing with his brothers that seem, seem harsh in some ways. I think if we'll allow them, they can give us a bit of an insight into how God deals with us. When we sin, God punishes us. God's word teaches, it teaches that punishment isn't a sign that God doesn't love us. It teaches the opposite. It says that he punishes those whom he loves. 
If that's true, then we should welcome God's discipline. What we should dread much, much more than God's discipline is, is that God would ever leave us to our own devices. That he would leave our, our rebellion and our bad behavior unchecked. That when we go off the rails, he wouldn't do something to call us back. That is what should terrify us. Not his discipline. He disciplines those whom he loves. He tests us to make us more like Jesus. When Joseph begins here to discipline his brothers, he, he does it by accusing them of spying. And again, that, that was a pretty reasonable step for him to take. I'm sure security around Egypt was quite high in those days. If you're a powerful empire, you're always guarding your borders. But if you're a powerful empire, the only place in the world that has food, then you're, you're really careful of how you're allowing people to approach you when you're the breadbasket of the world. So he, he accuses them of being spies, and they, they refute his claims. And when they do so, they start to tell him about his family. I think this is amazing. You leave home at 17. Over 20 years, not a word. Don't know anything about what's happening at home. And he learns that his younger brother's good. And he learns that his dad is still alive. These are huge moments for Joseph. His heart must have been racing. And he's thinking, what can I do? How can I get to see Benjamin? How can I get to see my dad? Verse 14, he comes up with a command. He's at least going to see if he can see Benjamin. So his plan, if you're really who you say you are, then go, go back and bring your youngest brother to me. One of you can go and get him, and the rest of you can stay here as hostages. And he put them in prison for three days to think over the offer. It's never occurred to me, but there's part of me that would like to have that kind of power over my siblings. Just, just three days, not, not forever, like, but three days for all that stuff you did to me when I was younger. Three days. Have a think about it all. On the third day, he seems to have mellowed a bit, and he's changed his mind. He says, okay, you can all go except for one. One of you needs to stay. Bring your younger brother to me. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in the, the cell those three days the brothers spent in their captivity. What was the conversation all about? Is God beginning to prick their consciences? I think he was. Look at what they said after those three days. Verse 21. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. These men are on their first steps to repentance. And, and often this is the way repentance come about, comes about. God permits something to happen, something in our circumstances to unsettle us, to unsettle our consciences. Something happens today that flags up the sins of yesterday or of 20 years ago. 
The things that we had tried all these years to, to hide away and to suppress, somehow God brings them to the surface and to the fore. The sin that we thought didn't matter rears up and we see our guilt once more. There's a thing that struck me about this story. I've, I've known this story for almost as long as I've lived. I went to Sunday school from a wee boy. But this time reading it, uh, there was a thing that I noticed that I hadn't noticed before. It's the age of the players. Okay, so Joseph's 37 at least, got out of prison when he was 30 and was promoted when he was 30. There have been the seven years of plenty and we're maybe a year or two beyond that that everybody's run out of food. So he's, Joseph's late 30s turning 40 and his brothers are older than him. So what we have here is 10 middle-aged men. This whole community is ripe for a midlife crisis. I'm 46 years old, so I'm just there among them. I'm number 11 in that crowd. A midlife crisis, defined by Wikipedia, is a transition of identity and self-confidence that can occur in middle-aged individuals, typically 45 to 64 years old. Is anybody identifying here? There's a website you can look on, you can look it up when you go home. 15 signs that you're experiencing a midlife crisis. I'll not read them all. Four of them that caught my eye. You're apathetic. You've lost your purpose. You're jealous of others. You're successful, but not satisfied. These brothers are about to experience a midlife crisis. They're going to evaluate the lives that they have been living. They're going to weigh them, and they're going to find themselves deeply dissatisfied. As I noticed that, and I thought about it in those terms for the first time, I wondered, well, what do we say about that? Here's what I want to say about that for myself. I want to be open to this kind of a midlife, a spiritual midlife crisis. If I've drifted from my first love in Jesus Christ, if I'm apathetic in my life with God, if I've lost my sense of, of purpose in Him, of His calling on my life, then I want to allow him to speak to me. To unsettle me. To disrupt me before it's too late. You see, an old dog can learn new tricks. The second half of my life can be better than the first. Maybe I'm like Bradley Cooper's character in that hit movie at the moment, A Star is Born. He's a middle-aged rocker, and as I listened to the soundtrack, I loved one of the songs. Maybe it's time to let the old ways die. Maybe it is. Maybe it's time for me to die to some of the self that I'm becoming, that I might become alive again 
to some of the self that he wants to make me to be. Maybe it's time for the old ways to die. The brothers didn't know in this story that Joseph understood everything that was going on, everything that they were saying. He had heard them recognize their guilt. He had heard Reuben defending himself, and we read in verse 24 that he turned away and he began to weep. Joseph's here, he's with his brothers, and he sees their pain. Joseph loves his brothers. We, we talked at the start about how we weren't sure about that. He, he loves his brothers. He's disciplining them. He's testing them. But it's for their good. He wants their good. It'll be because he loves them and because he wants the best for them. We've already said here this morning that Joseph's dealings with his brothers can serve to illustrate God's dealings with us. So his heart's breaking for them because they're, they're there with him, but they're not. They're not yet reconciled. He longs for that reconciliation to happen, but he's working deeply to make sure it's a, a beautiful recogni- rec- uh, reconciliation when the time comes. Whenever they, they're released from prison, Joseph had Simeon, the the older brother after Reuben, bound and dragged off into prison. And I'm sure the the brothers, their hearts were heavy. They'd come down, ten of them, they were going home, nine of them, and they knew that for the second time in their lives they were going to have to go and tell their dad that one of his sons had gone missing. But all the while Joseph's hatching a plan to test them. He gives the brothers their grain back. Uh, why did he do that? Was it a straight act of generosity? I, I think it might have been a little bit. No family of mine comes all this way and has to pay for their grain. There you are, have your grain back. Was it a test? I think it was. You see, whenever they opened their bags on the way home and they saw the money sitting there, they were terrified. They, they realized that they could easily be accused on their next visit to Egypt of stealing, stealing the grain. Going back with Benjamin the next time would be even more dangerous. So now they're stuck. If they go back with Benjamin, that's dangerous. And if they don't go back with Benjamin, they've lost Simeon. He's stuck in Egypt. They are being tested. And at verse 28, it's very interesting, they're beginning to see God's hand in all of this. Their hearts sank. They turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? What are they going to do? How are these brothers going to respond to this testing that God is doing through their brother Joseph? Are they the same men as they were 20 years ago? Or have they changed? We don't know. We'll have to wait and see next time. Let's leave it there for this morning. In this chapter, with Joseph dealing pretty harshly with his brothers so that he might open them to a new experience of God's grace. I wonder... 
Do you know what that's like? Have you ever experienced God's, God's discipline? God's severe mercies? Have you ever had a time in your life where God's disciplined you and tested you to, to see if he could bring you back closer to him, to, to reconcile you to him? Have you ever been humbled by the living God, shown all your sin, all your squalor, shown something that whenever you see it in yourself, you want to turn away? Shown all that so that Jesus and his beauty just becomes a wonderfully attractive presence for us. Friends, if you were if you were learned that you were sick this morning, to whom would you go? You'd look for a doctor, wouldn't you? You'd look for somebody who could help you when you're sick. If you had toothache, you'd be looking at a dentist. If you, if you had trouble with your eyes, you'd be looking for an optometrist, uh, an optometrist. You'd be looking for somebody to help you, an optician. But what if you were a sinner? And what if you saw it for the first time? And what if God showed it to you in a way that was finally unavoidable? There was no way under it or around it. It was just there. This is who I am. Where are you going to go? When he does that for us, when he shows us finally that we are a sinner, then we know we need a Savior. We know we need Jesus. So I say today to all of us, whatever age we are, midlife crisis or none, let him draw you back to him. Come today to Jesus. Let's pray.